I invite you to turn with me in your uh, Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to continue our series there. Um, Philippians chapter 3. Um, do you know what today is, by the way? February 22nd? It's not up day. <laughs> February 22nd. 35 years ago today. Still ring, not, not ringing a bell? Thir- no, it has nothing to do with Chelsea, but... 35 years ago today, February 22nd, 1980. The miracle on ice. 35 years ago today. How many of you were alive when this happened? How many of you remember this? Yeah. And you know, and you didn't, and if you saw it, you didn't see it live because they didn't televise it live. They take, you saw it like later that afternoon or night, depending where you were. I lived in California. A group of American college, uh, and amateur hockey players, average age of 21 plus, almost 22 years old, faced the mighty Soviet Union hockey team, considered the best team in the world by far, uh, and they defeated them four to three in um, Lake Placid, New York, in the Olympics. This was not the gold medal game, by the way. This was in the medal round. It was the next to last game. But the United States uh, were not favored. The, the Soviets were the overwhelming favorites. They had won gold medals at five of the previous six Olympics. I mean, they dominated, including four straight Olympics. They had won 12 of 15 world championships leading up to that, and many of those were consecutive leading into that, going into those Olympics. And both teams had made it through the first round and into the medal round for this very important matchup, and nobody, nobody thought the United States had any chance Whatsoever, And it didn't look promising at all because uh, 13 days, I think it was 13 days earlier, not even two weeks earlier, they, the, the Soviet Union team and the American team met in uh, an exhibition match at Madison Square Garden and the Soviets crushed them 10 to 3 and just in, like annihilated them. And so it was not uh, great. And so, but that moment, you guys remember this moment and what a huge thing it was. Go back and Google it. You could watch the, the, the whole hockey game. And as a kid in California, I loved watching this. I started to play hockey because of this. Well, this moment, like on roller skates, you know, the little four bangers, not the, you know, inline skates, the little. Um, and, and in Bakersfield, California, we went to every sports store we could find, not a single hockey stick. For all you Midwesterners, you're like, that's unfathomable. There's not a single hockey stick in Bakersfield at the time. So I got a piece of one-by-two pine wood and used that. So I got really good at my stick you know, abilities because I didn't have a blade. Um, so the, this was big. So sports. Sports, is, uh, sports can be a very huge thing and a very important thing. And I think that Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, I think he likes sports too. And the reason I know this is because Paul references sports and sporting events and the Olympics and those kinds of things, the Isthmian games, many times. Look at this couple of places Paul mentions this. Ephesians chapter 6. He uses sports and sporting contests and those kinds of things as a metaphor and example for us in the Christian life. Ephesians chapter 6. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood or the rulers and principalities. We, our, our battle is spiritual, but he uses the term wrestle. Like the Greco-Roman wrestling. We're in a spiritual battle. We need to think of it as, as wrestling. 
Paul writing to Timothy says, fight the good fight. That's the term for the fist fighting uh, thing. You were running really well, he says to the Galatians, who, who hindered you, who cut you off on the path and kept you from obeying the truth. Obeying the truth and following the gospel was, was referred to metaphorically as a race, as like a foot race. And Paul said this to the Corinthians, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, Paul says. I think Paul likes sports. And in the passage today in Philippians chapter 3, I think Paul uses some uh, sport imagery of pressing on and straining ahead. So let's read our scripture passage uh, this morning, and then we will get into the rest of the teaching. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16 will be our passage today. And let's back up a little bit to see uh, a little bit of the context here. Go back to verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that I may, that I, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And he continues, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on, there's a term, to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is the reading of God's word. So so Paul, kind of setting the scene here, this is... Uh, verses 12 through 16 are building right off of what he has just been arguing in the previous verses from verses 12 or verse 2 of chapter 3 all the way down. Remember, he begins with a warning to the Philippians. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for those evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. We saw this uh, a couple weeks ago. Who is that? Those are Judaizers. Those are the ones who were going in and saying, you Christians, you believe in Jesus. Good job. That's awesome. But you that you're making baby steps that you put your faith in Christ. Those are baby steps. Good job. Way to go. But if you really want to go on and you really want to gain salvation, uh, you Gentiles, you need to get circumcised. Because that's where the action really is. Uh, you know, that's what these Judaizers were saying. And Paul goes, that is anti-gospel. That is, goes against Christ. It may seem like it talks about Christ. Hey, good job, you believe in Jesus, but you got to do these things. That's anti-gospel and anti-Christ. So he warns against those things. And then he says, we're the circumcision. We're the ones who worship by the Spirit of God. And glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then he goes on, this whole thing about confidence. By the way, if you have confidence in the flesh, I've got more. 
You know, Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin. He starts listing off this seven-point litany of all of the good things that he does. And notice what he says here at the end of that, uh, at the end of verse 6. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. We saw that uh, before the, the singing. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he's saying, I'm, I'm, I was perfect. And then he talks about what he has gained in Christ. And so verse 12 kind of harkens back to this perfect thing because he wants to make sure he doesn't want to communicate any misleading notions to them. Uh, saying, hey, I was very perfect in my previous life in Judaism. I was blameless. But I want you to know, in the Christian life, my quest to become fully identified with Jesus and know him, I'm not perfect. No one's perfect. No one achieves that kind of perfection. Paul is saying, if I want to know Christ, and if, if I could even die right now and come back to life again, so that I could fully understand everything, every benefit, every gain I get in Christ, I would totally, totally do that. He goes, but I haven't obtained that yet. He says, I'm not, uh, I have not already obtained this and am not already perfect. And this is where he says, I press on. I press on to make it my own. So notice the contrast here. He's, he's gone from warning about anti-gospel to defining the gospel, and now he says he wants to give them a little picture of what it means to progress in the gospel. Okay? Pressing on, moving forward in the gospel. So warning them of anti-gospel, telling them what the gospel is, a righteousness not of my own, but which comes from Christ. And then he goes, now here's what you need to do now, Christians, to press on. Now remember... Uh, look back in chapter um, chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. This is a main theme of progressing in the Christian life or progressing in the gospel-oriented life. Paul says, uh, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Remember, he's weighing this whole thing, if I die here in prison or whatever. Uh, that'll be great because, you know, um, to die is gain. Um, but he goes, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So now he's getting, he's kind of returning back to that motif there in these verses about pressing on and progressing in the gospel-oriented life. So you see where he's, where the change, the shift that's happened. Nod if you do, Okay. Okay, thank you. Rosie's listening. All right. Um, so I want to look at three fundamentals or three, uh, three things, uh, of three ways to progress in the gospel-oriented life. We'll see how far we get. The first one is the fundamentals for progressing in the gospel-oriented life in verse 13. And this is moving on from the past. So one of the fundamentals you need to know in the gospel-oriented life is to move on from the past. Look at verse 13. He says, Brothers, I do not consider I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward, there's that athletic imagery again, the straining forward to what lies ahead. Now, forgetting, it's an interesting word there. Um, 
what is meant by forgetting and what is not meant here. What's not meant is the loss of the mental recognition of our past. We, we would think of forgetting as in, well, I forgot the details, you know, or I forgot somebody's birthday or forgot somebody's anniversary or, you know, or forgot your own anniversary, uh, right? So it's kind of like you forget details in the past or when you've, meet, you've met a friend that you haven't seen for a long time and they go, you know what? And they start to share the story about something you did and you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about because that was 20 years ago. I don't remember, Right. Maybe you're not old enough to have that kind of thing happen. It happens to me often. Um, so it's not forgetting the actual historical event of things happening. It's saying, I let go of those things. I've, I've put those things in the past. That's part of my past. So I've forgotten them in that sense. Does that make sense? So here, uh, again, um, let, me tell, let me share a little bit of the story. I ran, in, I ran track and cross country in high school. Four-year varsity letterman in track, four-year varsity letterman in cross country. I know, you're like looking at you, you, could, you wouldn't be able to tell that. But, um, but I did, it was in Bakersfield, California. As a matter of fact, who has seen the previews for a movie out called McFarland, USA? Oops, show of hands, right? That's, that's uh, like 30 miles from my house. Those were our rivals. And that, that whole story is set in 1987, which was right, that was my sophomore and junior year, those events. Um, as a matter of fact, um, when I heard about this movie and I was like, I think I know McFarland. I wonder if that's the cross-country team that were our rivals when I was in high school. And I go to Internet Movie Database and looked it up and I was like, sure enough, it's read the synopsis of the movie. I'm like, that movie's about the, our rivals. That's amazing. And I scroll down on the characters to see, and one of the characters way down on the list Bakersfield runner. <laughs> I'm portrayed in a movie. He's an extra, but I'm, I'm portrayed in a movie. So, uh, so I ran cross country, and I remember my first year, freshman year cross country, my very first race, we're running, uh, we weren't running against McFarland, we were running against somebody else. And uh, we're getting near the finish line. I'm in the middle of maybe fourth, fifth or something, and I hear some footsteps behind me. Uh, and, uh, and so again, I was a freshman and I was on the varsity team and I hear these footsteps behind me and you know what I did? I, I looked back, I looked back to see where the footsteps were from. And my coach, Art Dalzell, who, um, who was, uh, actually ran in the Olympic trials. He was a very, he was a, he was a world-class runner at the time. And he, when he could, he could yell all the way across a cross-country course, you could hear him. And I heard, don't look behind you! <laughs> don't look back! And at the end of the race, I, I, I think the guy just edged me at the finish. And um, afterwards, he grabbed me and he goes, good job, your first race. He go, and uh, he goes, never look over your shoulder. Never look back. Fundamentals, I guess, in finishing the race. You never look over the shoulder. You never look back. And I think it was probably very uh, real to him. He was old enough to have known. Who was the first person to break the four-minute mile? Does anybody know? Roger Bannister. Very good. Do you know, anybody know the second person to do it? Ah, that's interesting. Uh, John Landy. Okay, Roger Bannister, who's from the uh, United Kingdom, broke it in 1954, May 1954. Forty-six days later, an Australian named John Landy broke, the, broke his record. And also, so the two people, two human beings, have broke the four-minute mile, 
And then they were scheduled to race that August at the uh, British Commonwealth Games. And it was billed as the Miracle Mile, the only two human beings to ever run a mile in under four minutes. And here they were going to face each other for the first time. Here's a picture of it. There's a, there's a picture from the race. Okay? Roger Bannister is the one on the, the left. Uh, John Landy is the one on, that you see on the right. John Landy goes out. Uh, I think in the, after the first lap, he takes the lead. He gets a 10-yard lead on the rest of the field in a mile race. That's big at this level of competition. 10-yard lead. Uh, and then coming uh, into the last lap, Bannister starts to close him into the last turn and is getting behind him. And, and in the turn, right as they're coming out of the turn, and even the commentators noticed this as well too, coming out of the last turn, Bannister closing the gap, we're talking 50, 60 meters or so left in this race. Landy makes a critical mistake. What does he do? He looks over his shoulder. You even see it here. And he looks over his left shoulder, which is a big no-no. If you want to look, look to the right, especially if you're in the lead. So right at that moment, Roger Bannister bursts past him, and he never relinquishes the lead. And he wins the race, 3 minutes, 58.8 seconds. Uh, and Landy had 3 minutes, uh, 59.6 seconds. He looked back. He looked back. And both of them said afterward that that was the critical moment in the race. They both acknowledged in interviews afterward the critical moment was when Landy looked back. And that, uh, the picture on the right there is a statue, a bronze statue they did to memorialize this event. It's in Vancouver, uh, Canada. And uh, Landy said, uh, um, this is funny, uh, Landy said, Lot's wife looked back and was turned into a pillar of salt. I'm probably the only one who ever looked back and was turned into bronze. <laughs> so at least he has a good sense of humor about it. Don't look back. You don't look back on your past. Jesus said no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I know of some people and some examples of people who just have a difficulty in the Christian life because they keep looking back at their past, their past sins, saying things like this. And maybe if you've said these kind of things, maybe you could just kind of nod in agreement. God, I am such a failure. I could never be a good Christian. I have royally screwed up my life. I failed as a husband, or I failed as a dad, or I failed as a mother, I failed as a friend, and everything is looking back with regret and guilt and remorse. That's looking back. Paul says, don't. We don't look back. One of the things that Satan does for us, the word devil and Satan means accuser or adversary. I think one of the that's an apt description of what he does being a liar from the beginning. But one of the ways that he does try to tell the truth is to accuse us before God and to provoke and to remind of our past. Not looking back at our past is to realize we are forgiven of our past in Christ. We don't deny it's there, okay? 
We don't deny its existence. We don't mentally scrub the hard drive of our mind and pretend those things never happen. But we do say those things don't control us. Those aren't who we are. We look, we forget what's behind, and we press forward to what's ahead in the Christian life. So we forget. We forget in the same way that God forgets. Let me read to you a couple of scripture verses. You could write these down and look them up as well. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34. This is a promise. This is declares the Lord, a promise given to Jeremiah. And he's talking about that the end day when he will come and to restore his people. He will send out his spirit and uh, he will make a new covenant with his people. Jeremiah 31, 34. He says, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. The writer to the Hebrews picks that line up. He quotes it twice. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17. Cites it both times. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward, To what lies ahead. Remember that if God has chosen. uh, Just think about this. If God has chosen to not remember your sins. For which he sent his very son to die. Then why should you keep looking back at them? Why should we carry them around to weigh us down? They were cast on the cross of Christ. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We come to Christ and we say, Jesus, you've done this. You've taken this from me. And then we press forward. He wants us to press forward. His word tells us, forget what's behind, strain forward to what is ahead. Now, again, this is not a denial that they've ever existed. Again, let's look at Paul's words that we looked at earlier. Paul says, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to a service. Though formerly, okay, notice he, he recalls these events. This is written to Timothy near the end of his life. He's been a Christian for 30 years at this time. He says, formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent he doesn't, he doesn't scrub the mental memory that those things existed, but he does say those things don't define me. Those, that's not where my identity is bound. He says this, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then what does he say? Of whom I am the worst. But, what does he say? But, for that reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Friends, if you are still looking back on your sins And refusing to let them go, I I want you to examine yourself. Examine the gospel. Believe and receive eternal life in Christ. If you're still looking over your shoulder at your sins, you need to give them over to Jesus. 
You need to say, and let's all kind of bow our heads and close our eyes right now. You need to say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for me. I believe that you bore my sin in your body. Personally, you did it for me when you hung on a tree. And I confess my sin to you. I want to die to myself and to my sin and to live for your life and your righteousness. And I believe that by your wounds, I am healed. I confess you are Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead by the power of God. And I believe that you will raise me up and have raised me up to new life too. Amen. And amen. Like Paul, we don't deny our past, but we don't let them control us. We don't let them take our focus off of the future. We don't let, we don't let our sins and our past prevent us from fixing our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Well, that's the first point, the fundamental. The fundamentals for progressing in the gospel-oriented life is moving on from the past in Christ. And quickly, through the next two here, the goal for progressing in the gospel-oriented life is seen in verse 14. He's talked about the fundamentals in verse 13, and he talks about the goal for progressing in the gospel-oriented life in verse 14. And we would put it this way. The first one was moving on from the past. This one is pressing on for the prize. Moving on from the past, pressing on for the prize. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's a big kind of complex stringing together of a whole bunch of uh, words there. The goal for, call, for Paul is the prize. Now, uh, this is again reference to the, uh, uh, to the Olympics of the time, the Greek Olympics or the Corinthian Games or the Isthmian Games. Um, the prize, you know, would be kind of this wreath that they would get on their head. That was it. There were no uh, um, commercial contracts back in those days, right? I mean, so if you won, here's a celery leaf wreath. Put it on your head. Uh, congratulations, right? Um, but here, Paul says he wants to capture that imagery, and he says, you know what? We have a race. We press on in the Christian life and we forget what's behind. We focus our eyes on what is ahead toward the finish line. And that finish line is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Quite simply, this is um, the full and complete gaining of Christ and everything he had just outlined, I think, earlier in the chapter. Or heaven, you could say. The greatest reward would be to fully know Christ. To be in perfect fellowship with him. And that's what Paul wants. That's what he says. If, if, I could, if I could even die and come back to life again so that I could experience even what Jesus did dying, dying and coming back to life, that's what I want. But notice it's the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And we've talked about this many times before. Where is Jesus right now? Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne above. We sang about the throne several times today. Jesus is there at the throne. Romans 8, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Colossians 3.1. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He goes on that whole, and making purifi- after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Paul says, My, I focus on the prize, and the prize is gaining all that I have in Christ, who is, who is sitting at the right hand of God the Father in heaven right now. So that should be our goal, too. That's the other half. That's the other ways to progress in this is to keep in mind, to keep the end in mind. The goal of our heavenward call or our upward call of Christ, of God in Christ Jesus. And lastly, the motivation for progressing in the gospel oriented life. This is in verse 12. The motivation for progressing in the gospel oriented life. And I guess we could put it this way. Being mindful of whose possession we are. Look what it says in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Now, I want to capture this word. Uh, some other translations. Anybody have like the NIV? No? Nobody? Okay, what does it say there? Take hold of. Yes, the word is to grasp, to seize, to tackle, um, or... Uh, in some cases, it's used to steal. So, uh, so there's a, kind of a mixing, if you kind of get this idea of grasping and seizing and taking hold of, caralambano there. Paul says, I, that's what I seek to grasp that and take a hold of it, and then it becomes your possession. That's why the ESV says, um, uh, uh, to make it my own, right? So it's this, you got the bigger picture here is like to, to seize and to grasp and to take it as your own or to cling or to wrestle with somebody and you seize and tackle them and take them down. You've like, you, they become yours kind of thing, right? So Paul says, okay, now back to verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make that my own. And here's why. Because Christ Jesus has, same word. Made me his own. Tackled me. Seized me. Grabbed me. Made me his possession. I think Paul's likely hearkening back to the event of his conversion. Acts chapter 9. He's going out, breathing murderous threats, getting letters from the authorities in Jerusalem to go and get all of these people. And he is seized by Christ on the road. To Damascus. Who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Paul talks about that as being seized, grasped, taken a hold of Christ and being made his possession. Think about it. The motivation for the gospel-oriented life is to be mindful of whose possession we are if we're in Christ Jesus. If you put your faith in Christ Jesus, you've prayed that prayer like we were leading earlier. You become his possession. He's bought you. He has seized you. He has tackled you. And he has made you his own. What greater motivation than to think that I have been seized and caught by Christ? What what awesome way to think about why the motivation for, for
for following in the gospel-oriented life. It's because Jesus sees me. The nail-pierced hands of Jesus grabbed you. That's our motivation. So the fundamentals for progressing in the gospel-oriented life is moving on from the past, not being enslaved to those things in the past anymore, and our past sins. We confess them. We acknowledge them. We know that they're there, just like Paul does, but we move on from the past. To strain ahead toward what is the future, we look toward the goal, the heavenward call, the, uh, the calling of God, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, and the motivation to remind us, to fuel us, to motivate us in this uh, athletic endeavor is to remember whose possession we are. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for closing prayer. And if anyone needs prayer for anything and um, you would like to, uh, Don and I would be available up here. You could come and speak to us and, and we would be glad to pray with you as well too. Let's pray, shall we? Father God, we love you because you have first loved us. We are grateful to you because of Christ. We're thankful for these very words that Paul has given and words that you have given him. We're grateful for this letter that was given 2,000 years ago and the truth that it contains because it is, contains the, the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. God, we thank you for uh, the reminder, the warning against anti-gospel and the encouragement for us to uh, press on in a gospel-oriented life. God, we ask that you, when we are tempted, as we sang, we are tempted to despair. When Satan tempts us to despair and to remind us of our sin, God, may we remember verse 13 forgetting what is behind and pressing on to what is ahead. God, remind us of the goal. Give us a vision of your dwelling and presence in heaven so that we could fix our eyes on where Jesus is and our life could be oriented in that direction, straining toward what is ahead. And God, may we be reminded of of the motivation, the truth that we have been, that you have made us your own. Wow. God, thank you. Thank you for doing that for us in Christ Jesus. God, I pray uh, for uh, all here who have made Christ um, Savior and Lord, that you take these words and push them deep down May they, they be rooted and established in Christ. And God, for those who are on the fringes or don't know, God, we pray uh, now, even now, that you bring conviction of their past and their sin and to, to encourage them to come forward and just say, Jesus, I give this to you. God, thank you that you have made us your own. We ask that you continue to make even more people your own. Make us faithful witnesses to you in a dying world that we be like shining lights in the universe. It's in Christ's mighty name that we pray.
And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Thank you.